start at the copy at 3.33 a.m. in the morning. That's one minute after we'd switched to London. And here's what it says. Flash. That's a very rare thing, you know, in, in the news world. Flash. London. Eisenhower's headquarters announces Allies land in France. Immediately afterward, bulletin. Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force, June 6 AP. General Dwight D. Eisenhower's headquarters announced today that Allied troops began landing on the northern coast of France this morning, strongly supported by naval and air forces. The text of the communique, quote, under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces supported by strong air forces began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. In five seconds, I hear we again will get an official report from London. Go ahead, London. This is Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force. In a moment, you will hear the Supreme Commander, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. His statement will be followed by other messages to the peoples of the countries on the western coast of Europe, which are occupied by the enemy. The Supreme Commander, Allied Expeditionary Force, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. People of Western Europe. A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe, made in conjunction with our great Russian allies. I have this message for all of you. Although the initial assault may not have been made in your own country, the power of your liberation is approaching. All pictures. Men and women, young and old, have a part to play in the achievement of final victory. To members of resistance movements, whether led by nationals or by outside leaders, I say, follow the instructions you have received. To patriots who are not members of organized resistance groups, Elfos, continue your passive resistance, but do not needlessly endanger your lives. Wait until I give you the signal to rise and strike the enemy. The day will come when I shall need your united strength. Until that day, I call on you for the hard task of discipline and restraint. Citizens of France, I am proud to have again under my command the gallant forces of France. Fighting against their allies, they will play a worthy part in the liberation of their homeland. Because the initial landing has been made on the soil of your country, I will speak to you with even greater emphasis my message to the peoples of other occupied countries in Western Europe. Follow the instructions of your leaders. A premature uprising of all Frenchmen may prevent you from being of maximum help to your countries in a critical hour. Be patient. Prepare. As Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, there is imposed on me the duty and responsibility of taking all measures necessary to the prosecution of the war. And willing obedience to the orders that I shall issue is essential. Effective civil administration of France must be provided by Frenchmen. All persons must control in their present duties unless otherwise instructed. Those who have made common cause with the enemy and so betrayed their country will be removed. When France is liberated from her oppression, you yourselves will choose your representatives and the government under which you wish to live. In the course of this campaign for the final defeat of the enemy, you may sustain further loss and damage. Tragic though they may be, they are part of the price of victory. I assure you that I shall do all in my power to mitigate your hardship. I know that I can count on your steadfastness now, no less than in the past. As the heroic deeds of Frenchmen who have continued the struggle against the Nazis and their Vichy satellites in France and throughout the French Empire, have been an example and an inspiration to all of us. This landing is but the opening phase of the campaign in Western Europe. Great battles lie ahead. I call upon all who love freedom to stand with us now. Keep your faith staunch. Our arms are resolute. Together we shall achieve victory. You have just heard the Supreme Commander, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. It has just been announced that General de Gaulle has arrived in England. He will broadcast a message to the people of France later in the day.
You will next hear the King of Norway, His Majesty King Håkon VII. Landsmen, from this distance to war, but these to come. Some hot out sickness for preparing, but we will pass from a foot to foot. A cream for this, without going in any further. Then a milling, how we all the mortars, the deep, but namely his oblivion. For these, then, in there, this hidden arm, at the Algerian circle, no hot hurt us. It got stickling her from the wild Mosaian of the moon. It lay over the Uwekke. No Ekebosco go to moon for Hassel and a Uwawa lack handling. Then it seen from our theater at an innocent opportunity and fur. Or like a skin, all the things we are in the wild. They must sleep on sleep mode. Who is a sick he is a sale the organization of some the with the altipot. Also, for them, Mora, a man come and tell our the name that in fact is for your company. I, from the regering, send in warm hilfen to all landsmen that so rank as in cost. For some of our village, the pitiful, their friend must die near Kaisner of Kau. The Allier Circus, our commander. Wie at the Ucker, the Swichter, what to do? Or we, Norwalk, at the Alta, the Swichter, then? Lansman, all some of their parades. Leave the Trainer, National Files, leave for you. Here is a translation of King Hawkins' message to the people of Norway. Fellow countrymen, as a leader of the strategic plan which aims at liberating the oppressed peoples of Europe, the war in the West has today entered a new phase. We have all received this news with a profound feeling of joy and satisfaction as we realize that our forces have thereby carried us a good way further on the road to victory and liberation. Heartened by these developments, our people must not allow their enthusiasm to lead them into premature or unpremeditated acts. From now on, however, it will be of even greater importance than heretofore to hinder and impede the enemy by all subtle and covert means that do not expose yourself or others. This order does not apply to organized resistance groups who are in touch with the Allied military authorities. They have been given their special orders and they will receive further orders. These they will carry out in the knowledge that if they are in need of a hiding place or food or any other help, they will always find it. In this way also, many of you will be able quietly to take an effective part in the battle for freedom. I and my government warmly salute all compatriots who stand firm at their posts and to look forward to ever more exacting tests in a spirit of self-sacrifice and confidence. The Supreme Allied Commander will at all times keep you informed about what is expected of everyone under his command. And over the radio and by other means, our people will continue to be in close contact with their constitutional authorities. 
we salute the forces which have now gone into battle. Our thoughts and warmest wishes go with them. We know that they will not fail us, and we promise never to fail them. Fellow countrymen, keep together and be prepared. Long live the cause of the United Nations. Long live the cause of freedom. That ends the translation of King Hawkins' statement. Communique number one, issued by Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force, will now be repeated. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. You will now have the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, his Excellency, Professor Herbrandi. Mannen en vrouwen van Nederland. Nu het grote ogenblik gekomen is waarop de Canadese spreekkrachten tot een machtigen aanval zijn overgegaan vanuit het Westen, heb ik enkele zeer ernstige woorden tot u te zeggen. Ik verzoek u hiernaar met de grootst mogelijke aandacht te luisteren en mijn woorden met de afneming van alle noodzakelijke veiligheidsmaatregelen door te geven aan de betrouwbare landgenoten die niet in de gelegenheid waren naar mij te luisteren. Landgenoten, nu de geallieerde motorslag neerkomt op Hitler's Atlantic Wall, gaat door ons allen een siddering van ontroering. Onze mannen van leger, vloot, luchtmacht en koopvaardij hebben de taak te vervullen welke aan hen door de militaire opperbevelhebber is toebedeeld. In de harten van ons allen stijgt het dringende beter op tot en almachtige om hulp en bijstaat in deze vooral door rechtvaardige strijd. In nauw overleg met de geallieerde opperbevelhebber geef ik u daarom de volgende order waaraan ik verwacht dat iedere Nederlander die van goede wille is zich zal houden. Mijn orders richten zich niet tot die speciale verzetgroepen die hun eigen orders hebben ontvangen en daaraan gevolg zullen geven. Ik richt mijn instructies tot hen die niet lid zijn van die speciale verzetgroepen. 1. Hij zult geen daden van gewelddadig openlijk verzet leven. Het zou den vreden gaan slechts de gelegenheid bieden represailles te nemen, veel en veel bloediger dan ooit tevoren. 2. Zij die redeneren dat ze gaarne hun leven veil hebben en zich dus niet willen laten weerhouden van iedere vorm van directe hulpverlening, zijn op het hart gebonden dat de represailles zich zouden uitstrekken over vrede en vrede onschuldigen. Wij kennen den Duitsers. En ik herhaal dus met klem, geen gewelddadig openlijk verwet. 3. Wat daarentegen wel geschieden moet is, overal waar onzichtbaar en onherkenbaar verzet mogelijk is, moet er onverbiddelijk worden geboden. 4. Daarnaast dient hij alles na te laten wat een vijand van enig direct of indirect voordeel zou kunnen zijn. 5. Vijand zal geen enkel middel verzuimen om u te provoceren of te misleiden. Wees overal waar gij staat of staat op uw hoede. Luister alleen naar de aanwijzingen die wij van hieruit geven. 6. Zodra van u een krachtiger actie wordt verwacht, zal weer op een onmiskenbare wijze van hieruit worden duidelijk gemaakt. Nederlanders, bid met ons om de zegen. Leven het vaderland. Here is a translation of the statement just made by the Prime Minister of the Netherlands. Men and women of the Netherlands. Now that the great moment has arrived, 
and the Allied forces have started the mighty attack from the West, I have some very solemn words to say to you. I request you to listen with the greatest possible attention and, with due observance of all necessary security measures, to pass on my words to trustworthy compatriots who have not been in a position to listen to me. Fellow countrymen, now that the Allied sledgehammer blow is falling on Hitler's Atlantic Wall, we are all thrilled with emotion. Our men of the Army, the Navy, the Air Force and the Merchant Navy have to fulfill the task allotted to them by the military commander-in-chief. In the hearts of all of us rises the urgent prayer to the Almighty for help and assistance in what is for us so righteous a struggle. In close deliberation with the Allied High Command, I therefore give you the following order, which I expect every Dutchman of goodwill to keep. These orders do not apply to those organized resistance groups who have received their orders and who will obey them. It is to those who are not members of organized resistance groups that I address these instructions. One. You will not perpetrate any acts of violent, open resistance. It would only offer the cruel enemy an opportunity to take far bloodier reprisals than ever before. Two, those who reason that they are ready to sacrifice their life and therefore do not wish to refrain from any form of direct assistance are urged to consider that the reprisals would extend to a great many innocent people. We know the Germans. And I therefore request, with emphasis, no violent, open resistance. Three. This, however, must be done. Wherever invisible and unrecognizable passive resistance is possible, it must be inexorably forthcoming. Four refrain from any act that might be of any direct or indirect advantage to the enemy. Five. The enemy will not fail to employ any means of provoking or deceiving. Wherever you go, wherever you may be, watch your own behavior. Listen, all of you, to the instructions which we give you from here. As soon as more forceful action is required of you, this will be made clear from here in unmistakable fashion. Dutchmen, pray with us Long live the fatherland. That ends the translation of the statement made by the Prime Minister of the Netherlands. You will next hear the Prime Minister of Belgium. His Excellency, Monsieur Hubert Pierlot. Mes chers compatriotes, l'heure attendue par vous est proche. Les opérations préliminaires pour la libération de l'Europe ont commencé. Cet assaut initial est l'annonce certaine de votre délivrance. Vous allez vivre des jours difficiles, dans une attente anxieuse. C'est le moment de montrer une fois de plus les qualités de discipline et de maîtrise de vous-même dont vous avez donné tant d'exemples depuis quatre ans. La première règle à suivre sera de modérer votre impatience. La seconde, de ne pas vous laisser tromper par les excitations perfides de l'ennemi et de ne pas vous laisser engager dans des actions prématurées qui ne pourrait avoir pour résultat que de terribles représailles. Les alliés vous sont reconnaissants de la magnifique résistance que vous avez montrée sous l'oppression allemande et le gouvernement est convaincu que vous ferez tout ce qui est possible pour contribuer à détraquer la machine de guerre de l'ennemi. Le succès final de l'effort militaire aujourd'hui commencé dépend en grande partie de la force
que vous conserverez pour le moment décisif. Vous souhaiteriez que nous vous demandions tout de suite tout l'effort dont vous êtes capable. Mais une résistance organisée, déjà en possession de ces consignes et le sabotage clandestin, sont maintenant plus utiles. À tous les patriotes, je dis, obéissez avec une discipline complète à tous les ordres qui vous sont donnés par le commandement suprême allié et par votre gouvernement. Mais soyez attentifs à discerner les fausses consignes qui pourraient être lancées par l'ennemi. Ne croyez pas les rumeurs non contrôlées. La seule façon de vérifier l'authenticité des nouvelles est de vous assurer qu'elles sont transmises par les stations de télégraphie sans fil des alliés. Par-dessus tout, méfiez-vous des agents provocateurs. Le moment du suprême combat n'est pas encore venu. Lorsqu'il aura sonné, vous en serez averti par le commandement allié et par votre gouvernement. L'on vous dira alors clairement ce que l'on attend de vous. Utilisez cette période intermédiaire pour perfectionner vos organisations afin qu'au moment voulu, leur action soit pleinement efficace. Dans les souffrances accrues qui marqueront peut-être la dernière phase de la guerre, tous les Belges devront plus que jamais montrer un mutuel dévouement et toutes les ressources encore disponibles des plus éprouvées. Les modèles que nous vous envoyons sont courage, discipline, solidarité, confiance. Here is a translation of the statement just made by the Prime Minister of Belgium. My beloved countrymen, the hour so long awaited by you is near. Preliminary operations for the liberation of Europe have begun. This first assault is the certain signal for your deliverance. You are going to undergo difficult days in a period of anxious waiting. This is the time to show once again those qualities of discipline and self-control which for four years you have so often displayed. The first rule for you to follow is to moderate your impatience. The second is not to let yourselves be fooled by any of the enemy's treacherous provocations and not to let yourselves be embroiled in any premature action which could result in terrible reprisals. The institution has shown under German option. And the government is convinced that you will do everything possible to contribute to the overthrow of the German war machine. The final success of the military undertaking which began today depends largely on the strength that you can serve for the decisive moment. You naturally want us to demand of you immediately all the effort of which you are capable. But the organized resistance, which already has its orders, and clandestine sabotage, are at this moment of more use. To all patriots, I say, obey with complete discipline all the orders given you by the Supreme Allied Command and by your government. But be on the alert for false orders, which might be issued by the enemy. Do not believe uncontrolled rumors. The only way to check the genuineness of any news is to make sure it is different from Allied radio stations. Above all, access agents will not appear. The moment of supreme combat has not yet come. When it does, you will be warned of it by the Allied command and by your government. You will then be clearly told what is expected of you. Use the period that intervenes to perfect your organization so that at the desired moment, their action may be fully effective. In the increased suffering, which perhaps will mark the last phase of the war, all Belgians must, more than ever before, show their devotion to each other and use all resources still available to relieve the sufferings of those most sorely tried. The watchwords we send you are courage, discipline, unity, and confidence.
That ends the translation of the Belgian Prime Minister's statement. Communique number one. Issued between headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force will now be repeated. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. This concludes the broadcast from Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force. This is the home and overseas service of the BBC. Once again, this is Columbia's newsroom in New York City. This is Bob Trout speaking. We are continuing, naturally. We are continuing our coverage of the invasion. We just heard a broadcast from London. I uh, must tell you now that we are to pause for a 15-second station identification break, but this is warning to all our stations on the network that we uh, are going to pause only for 15 seconds, and after that we are going to have another broadcast from overseas. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Once again, this is Columbia's news headquarters in New York City, and we are continuing our coverage of the invasion, which, as you know, has now officially begun. That long broadcast we had well, it came directly from, from England, not from London. It came from somewhere in England, the headquarters, the supreme headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Forces, which are familiarly known as SHAFE. Now, we just pause for station identification, and in a few moments, we are to bring you another broadcast from Britain. The broadcasts are coming in so quickly, the details are moving so swiftly that we don't get time to stop and uh, sum up the uh, situation and tell you just where we are, but I'm sure if you are with us for any length of time, you can see just where we are. The invasion is official. The first communique has been issued from headquarters in England. We have heard from England General Eisenhower's message to the people of Europe, and then uh, King Håkon of Norway spoke, followed by a translation in English. Then we heard the Prime Minister of the Netherlands. That was translated, and then the Prime Minister of Belgium and his speech was translated also. And then we heard, once again, the communique number one read over again. We started this particular broadcast. Columbia's been broadcasting all evening off and on these special news programs. We started this particular broadcast about an hour and 16 minutes ago at 3 o'clock in the morning, Eastern Wartime here in New York. And as we were talking, reading the bulletins that were coming in on the news machines, at exactly 3.32 Eastern Wartime, the word came to go to England. We switched to England and we heard Colonel Dupuy at Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Forces reading communique number one saying that the landings have begun. Then we came back to New York, then we switched to London again very quickly, heard Columbia's correspondent in London, Edward R. Murrow, reading an order of the day, and then we came back to New York, and then we switched once again to London for this last rather lengthy broadcast from Allied Headquarters, General Eisenhower's message to the people of Europe, King Hogan's speech, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands' speech, the Prime Minister of Belgium's speech. Now, in a few moments, we will go again to London. We don't know exactly uh, just what it's going to be at this particular moment, but we are going to go to England to bring you another one of the broadcasts in the story which is moving very swiftly now. We are going to hear from Wright Bryan, who is representing the combined American networks in London. This is Wright Bryan speaking from London. In the first hour of D-Day by British double summertime, or a little more than an hour before D-Day began by Greenwich Mean Time, the first spearhead of Allied forces for the liberation of Europe landed by parachute in northern France. In the navigator's dome in the flight deck of a C-37, I rode across the English Channel with the first group of planes from Troop Carrier Command to take our fighting men into Europe. Just before we left French soil for the return trip to England, I watched from the rear door of our plane, named the Snooty, as 17 American paratroopers, led by Lieutenant Colonel, jumped with their arms, ammunition, and equipment into German-occupied France. Our group, at the head of the leading wing from the U.S. 9th Air Force's Troop Carrier Command, was met with only scattering small arms fire from the fields, which were dark and quiet as we entered enemy territory. As we headed back towards the English coast, we saw tracers arching through the air behind us, and a steady parade of Allied planes moving out over the course we had just navigated to strengthen the ground forces we had left below. In the channel below us, we could see a few ships, but could not be certain whether they were part of the armada carrying Allied soldiers to the beaches 
for attacks which were quickly following the first landings of airborne troops which I had witnessed. For two days, I had been living with the troop carrier squadron commanded by Major Clement G. Richardson of Salinas, California. His combat crews had been fully briefed as to their initial mission, the course they would fly, and all procedures they would follow. From the moment this briefing began, the combat crews lived apart from the ground personnel of their base, with barbed wire surrounding their quarters and guards protecting them from any contact with outside persons. All day Monday, they watched the weather. After an early supper, they broke up into small groups for volleyball games in their small recreation area. In the early evening, Major Richardson returned from a conference with Lieutenant Colonel Donaldson of Birmingham, Alabama, commanding this lead group. As Major Richardson came within the barbed wire enclosure of his own squadron, he blew a long, shrill blast on his whistle. The pilots, co-pilots, navigators, and radio men clustered around him. Come into the briefing room, he said. There he stood in front of a large-scale map on which the course was plotted. As quickly as his men were all in the room, Major Richardson said, Do you know your stuff? There was no word of dissent spoken. Said Major Richardson, Get your stuff and report to the operations room immediately. I'm going down to the colonel to get the weather report. I think this is it. Good luck. The crews began to file out of the room, but Major Richardson stopped them. You ought to get back, don't you, he asked. There was a quick murmur of assent. Then, damn it, get in there and fight. The crews piled in their trucks to go first to the operations office and then to the line where their planes were drawn up and ready to go. As they moved towards the airport proper, they passed long columns of airborne troops, trudging slowly under their full loads of battle equipment from the bivouac area where they had been camped awaiting this day toward the planes which would carry them into battle. General Eisenhower had visited this camp during the afternoon, quietly passing among the men and chatting with them, asking them names and their homes and their jobs. Outside the door of each C-47, the soldiers assembled and checked their equipment while ground crews and combat crews gave the planes a final tuning up. Heavily laden transport planes began taxiing along in long procession toward the runway. As the first squadron, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel David Daniel of Birmingham, Alabama, began to take off, the planes rushing in swift succession down the runway, Lieutenant General Lewis H. Brereton, the 9th Air Force commander, moved up and down the line of planes, giving the thumbs-up sign to his crews. Meantime, the paratroopers had adjusted their packs, donned their May Wests and chutes, and climbed into the planes. Each was so heavily loaded that he had to be pushed from behind and pulled from above to get up the steps into the plane. In our plane, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Cole of San Antonio, Texas, the senior officer aboard, moved quietly up and down the passenger compartment, speaking to each man and asking if he had everything he needed. As the men settled in their bucket seats, Colonel Cole said, the doc is going to give you some pills to guard against air sickness. Make yourselves as comfortable as you can. Better try to sleep a little. Quiet settled in the plane. These men had done their talking. Now they were grim and silent. The soldiers sitting farthest forward on the port side, Private Robert C. Hillman of Manchester, Connecticut, said, I know my chute's okay because my mother checked it. She worked in the Pioneer Parachute Company in our town and her job is giving the final once-over to all shoots they manufacture. On the flight deck of our plane, the Snooty, Lieutenant John E. Peters of Chicago, the pilot, and Lieutenant B.E. Maxwell of Clay of Michigan muttered soft curses as their motors were slow to start after a long pause on the taxi strip. But when the engines did turn over, they droned steadily and powerfully. Almost before we knew it, we were trundling along past the operations buildings and the control tower where all the ground personnel of the base were standing. Some held thumbs up. Some made the V sign. Some waved. It was like the takeoff of a big mission from a bomber station, only more so. This was the first combat mission for this outfit, and everyone on the base knew that this was the day. Our ship was leading the second section of the second squadron in the first group. As we picked up speed on the long runway, I stood between the pilot and co-pilot and watched formation lights of the ships ahead of us slowly, almost imperceptibly climbing, then gradually swinging into wide circles. This thing is really loaded down, said Pilot Pete, and as we became airborne, 
You could almost feel the sturdy transport strengthening its muscles and shouldering its burden. Then, foot by foot, almost inch by inch, rising above the fields and trees of southern England. As our squadron fell into its formation, three Vs of three ships each in the first section and three Vs of three ships each in the second section, which we were leading, the preceding squadron was already circling the home field, now gaining altitude more rapidly. Other squadrons followed us. Soon the entire group was in the air. All about us and below us was such a glimmering fabric of lights as I had not seen in the eight months I had been in blacked-out England. Four times we circled the field, its runways and perimeter outlined in sparkling white lights. Through the sky, formation lights of the planes strung out almost to the limit of vision, looking for all the world like holiday decorations stretching down the length of any American main street. As the long procession straightened out on its pre-established course toward the shore of the English Channel, signal lights blinked and navigators checked their speed and direction with the pilots and began their continuous plotting of position. As we headed toward the coast, the bulky transports silhouetted against the skies, they gently undulated in the prop wash of their companions. Reaching the first point for change of course, our plane blinked its signal light, and Pete said to his co-pilot, Want to take it now, Maxie? And Maxie took over the controls. Right on course, and we're one minute early, reported navigator Robert E. Taylor of Altoona, Pennsylvania. At that moment, I left the glass blister in the forward roof of the fuselage, sometimes called the astral globe, sometimes called the navigating dome, from which I had been watching the formations about me, too fascinated to feel the weight of the flak suit, which, like all crew members, I was wearing, or the steel helmet, which I was pressing against the ceiling. Down the long passenger cabin, I walked to see how the paratroopers were riding. More than half of them had taken their colonel's advice and were dozing with their heads back against the wall and their feet stretched out in front of them. The others were sitting silently, except for two or three who talked among themselves in whispers. By the open rear door, Colonel Cole waited and said, It's cold back here with the wind whipping in. I had been perspiring in the crew's cabin up front, but back where the colonel sat, I was glad I wore heavy clothing. More signal lights blinked as we crossed the coast of England and pushed out across the channel. The sea was calm, its steely grayness blending in the half-light with the dingier gray of the horizon. But soon the moon brightened the water and made the ripples below us twinkle. The ship on our wing... Just to identify the speaker for you, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Wright Bryant representing the Combined Allied Networks, speaking to us from Allied headquarters in England and giving us a description of the takeoff of the airborne troops from the fields from which they took off on the invasion of the continent. And now back to the voice of Wright Bryant. We had not seen a plane outside our own formations, but the fighters must have done their work well, so there was no sign of enemy aircraft about. Tiny, tell the colonel it's 30 minutes until jump time, yelled Pilot Pete. And the fat, husky crew chief, Staff Sergeant Richard A. Eberly of Indianapolis, whose father is a major in the Air Corps, shouldered his way back to give the word to Colonel Cole. And then, turning my eyes from the occasional lights and flares which glowed on the Channel Islands, I looked straight ahead and caught my first glimpse of the coast of France. I had never visited the continent of Europe in peacetime, and I was waiting for Invasion Day to visit it in wartime. The pilot and the co-pilot, too, were seeing this coast for the first time. None of us spoke, but each looked at the other. Momentarily, we interrupt this description of Wright Bryant being broadcast from the British Isles to give you this bulletin that's come in on the International News Service here in New York. It says, at 4.10 a.m. Eastern Wartime today, German broadcasts reported fighting between German and Allied troops 10 miles inland from the coast of Normandy. DNB said that Allied troops had been reinforced at the mouth of the Seine at dawn. You must remember that this is a German broadcast which is reported by INS, but it is the first word of any fighting inland at all, and the German, this German broadcast says 10 miles inland. And now we return to the description of Wright Bryant speaking from Supreme Headquarters in England. The small fields looked peaceful with their orderly hedgerows. It almost seems you could see the furrows. Now the paratroopers were on their feet, each adjusting his packs and snapping his ripcord over the static line, a cable which ran along the center of the cabin ceiling, 
so that each chute would open automatically as its wire jumped through the door. You all set, asked the colonel. Get this thing hooked for me, he said, as he took his own place closest to the door. The jump lights, a small bank of signal lamps, were gleaming beside the door. They blinked as the pilot threw his switch, and before I could look up, they began jumping. I wanted to know how long it would take the 18 men to jump. I tried to count 101, 102, 103 to estimate the number of seconds. Before I had counted to 10 seconds, may have been 11 or 12, but no more, our passengers had left us, all but one of them. The paratroopers shoved each other so swiftly and heavily towards the open door that they jolted against the door frame. One man among the last half dozen hit the rear of the door so heavily that he was thrown into the back of the cabin and dazed. The men behind shoved him aside and went on jumping. Before the unhappy soldier could get to his feet, our plane was well past the drop zone, and in a matter of minutes it was back over the water and setting a course for home. It was too late, and that soldier had to return with us. He was unconsolable. He thought his comrades might think him yellow. The plane crew assured him that they would think no such thing, but he sat moody and glum all the way back and appealed for lonely instructions when he returned. As soon as I had watched the jumps from the rear door, I ran back to the front of the ship and looked straight back from the glass dome. Tiny streams of tracer bullets were curving upward from the ground, but they were well behind us. One of the pilots in our squadron had unwittingly left on his formation lights, and the tracers came closest to his wingtips. But we saw nothing that looked like heavy ACAC except in the far distance. Our course had been well plotted and navigated to avoid the known German batteries. We were over France only 11 minutes. With our ships lightened by unloading their cargo, we picked up speed and streaked for home. Behind us, we could still see the tracers and an occasional flare. Below, a few more ships, but we couldn't tell just what they were. The Battle of Europe had begun, and our squadron had delivered the first Allied foot soldiers to their scene of action. This is right, Brian. This is right, Brian, in London, returning you to New York. Once again, this is Columbia's newsroom in New York, our studio adjoining the newsroom to be exact, Bob Trout speaking. We've been listening to Wright Bryant, who represents the combined Allied networks and has been speaking to us from uh, SHAFE, that's the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Forces, with a description of the takeoff of the first airborne troops to uh, leave the field to take part in this invasion. Now, there's so much uh, to tell you to bring you up to date, and it's a little bit difficult to tell just when we are going to switch to London again. A good many broadcasts are coming in from uh, the British Isles, as you can tell if you've been with us at all since about 3.30 this morning, when the first communique was read at 3.32 Eastern wartime exactly, from London as a matter of fact. It's a bit difficult to tell when we're going to switch back and uh, how much of the story we should tell you here, from here at the moment. Uh, Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott, has a few things that he's been waiting to say during the time when we've been listening to these broadcasts from London. One of them, or from England rather, we don't know whether they're from London. Uh, one of them, I know, concerns the uh, position in the invasion of General Montgomery. That's right, isn't it, Major Elliott? Uh, that's right. Uh, we have a communique here to the effect that General Sir Bernard L. Montgomery of the British Army, whom you'll remember as the famed commander of the 8th Army during the fighting in North Africa, is commanding the Army Group carrying out the attack on the French coast. It was announced today. An Army Group is a very large organization consisting of two or more armies. And it's further stated that General uh, Montgomery's Army Group includes American, Canadian, and British forces. We should not suppose that this is the only Army Group which will be landed on the coast of Europe eventually. This is just the first such organization to land. Remember, it's a very, very large force, including at least two armies under the combined command of General Montgomery. Now, uh, I'd like to call your attention to something in uh, Mr. Clark's report, which you heard earlier, in which he pointed out that the Germans will be surprised by the direction and shocked by the timing of the attack. That indicates that the Allies expect to surprise the Germans when the main attack develops. Now, what happens before we are finally able to determine where the main attack is being delivered may, of course, be a feint intended to deceive the enemy. 
The, uh, it's interesting to note that one of Montgomery's opponents will be his old enemy from North Africa, Marshal Rommel. Marshal Rommel is not the supreme commander of the German anti-invasion forces. The supreme commander of those forces is Field Marshal Gerd von Rundstedt, who is a very experienced officer. He's 69 years of age, but is considered one of the ablest officers in the German army. It is believed that Marshal Rommel commands the Mobile counterattack forces under Marshal von Rundstedt's general command. The weather over the uh, channel is reported to be bright and clear with uh, moderate sea and occasional gusts of wind. Uh, there are some low-hanging clouds in some areas which may occasion some difficulty to our aircraft. There's a German report that the American troops were reinforced at dawn at the mouth of the Seine by sea and air, which might suggest that our main objective is Le Havre. But there's also another German report. Remember, this is a German report and not confirmed from any Allied source, which says that American forces are penetrating toward the town of Caen. It does not say whether these are troops that have been landed on the beach and are pushing inland toward Caen, which is about seven and a half miles from the coast and controls, controls the main railway to the town of Sherbrooke. It is further stated that Allied battleships, monitors, and cruisers bombarded the coast defenses at long range and that other craft, destroyers, and small craft closer in covered the landing of our forces landing on the beaches. But apparently the parachutists the, and airborne troops were the first to deliver the blow, as you've just heard from Mr. Wright Bryant. These were apparently the first foot soldiers to land on the soil of France where the, uh, were the parachutists. And you'll remember that he referred to long columns of airborne troops marching up to the uh, takeoff bases, which suggests that these airborne troops, that is, uh, airborne infantry, uh, perhaps carried in gliders or troop-carrying planes, are going to follow up the efforts of the parachutists as soon as the parachutists have obtained fields on which the transport planes and gliders can land. It is reported that these forces are being opposed by German shock troops. This is another German report. And uh, you'll remember that the Germans have been boasting for some time of a special organization, special shock troop detachments, which have been organized to fight the expected arrival of Allied airborne troops. Well, that is a summary of the military situation as far as we have it now. And now, here once again, is Bob Trout. That was Major George Fielding Elliott, Columbia's mm -hmm. military analyst. And uh, now the Columbia's newsroom has been uh, filling up even more than it was filled uh, some time ago, and we began to take you on that informal tour of the newsroom, which suddenly developed into the invasion while we were actually watching the machines. At that time, I believe there were about 25 people actively working in our newsroom at top speed, and now the number has increased. Among uh, other arrivals who's been here for the last hour or two is Columbia's war correspondent, Quentin Reynolds, whom you've all heard many times. He saw the invasion at Salerno. He saw the invasion at Sicily. That's a little backward chronologically. I should say he saw the invasion of Sicily, the invasion of Salerno, and he was at the uh, maneuver, the landing at Dieppe, which is near the present fighting as far as we can tell. And now here is Quentin Reynolds. The words of the communique announcing the landings were brief and cold and factual. We don't know how many men landed on enemy territory as yet. We don't know how many places they landed. We don't know whether their trip across the water was a hard one, constantly hampered by German aircraft. We only know that last night one man said two words. Eisenhower said, let's go, and the invasion was on. There are a thousand stories behind the short communique which merely told us that our men had landed. Those of us who have been on other amphibious landings can imagine how our men felt last night when they were finally told that their long months of waiting were over. As long as these men live, the evening of June 5th will always be to them the night before D-Day. And if they live to be 100, June 6th will forever be D-Day to them. Back to Bob Trout now. Sorry to interrupt you, Quentin Reynolds, but now we will hear a broadcast from John W. Vandercook, who is representing all networks, and who will speak to us from London. Go ahead, London. This is John W. Vandercook in London. The announcement has just been made that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. 
The feints and diversions promised by Winston Churchill and hinted at by the military experts have now been relegated to the limbo of dead words. For as a million people will say today, this is really it. This is a queen's move, straight across the board. The astronomical numbers of planes that the weeks past have been pulverizing rod by rod and yard by yard. Every German position from literally the beginning of shallow water to far within the hinterland of France have now, with close naval support, been followed by the paratroopers. From literally the beginning of shallow water to far within the hinterland of France have now, with close naval support, been followed by the paratroopers, the landing boats, the infantry. Beachhead is a narrow term. By all present indications, General Eisenhower and his field commander, the great Montgomery of Egypt and North Africa, have attacked along miles of the French coast. The textbook pattern of invasion, and this, of course, is the most massive such operation in all human history, calls for the early possession by the attacker of good seaports. The purpose of that is clear. A major offensive against an enemy-held coast requires, swiftly after its commencement, the possession by the initiators of the attack of harbors capable of the unloading of far weightier materiel than can be put ashore even by the incredibly versatile and numerous amphibian landing craft. That is probably an essential part of the Allied plan, as it is now being put in practice. Be sure of it, we are moving with the weight of mountains. In his order of the day issued to each man in the Allied expeditionary force, General Dwight Eisenhower calls this mighty mission the Great Crusade. He adds, the eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. General Eisenhower makes this solemn promise. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed people of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. And the Supreme Commander warns. The enemy will fight savagely. He is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. The final words of the general's orders have the lift that at this hour in England has raised every heart. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck. And let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. American, British, and Canadian forces under the direct command of General Bernard L. Montgomery are carrying out the first gigantic phase of the attack. The skies are a hum with the ceaseless passage of great planes that shuttle smoothly back and forth from the countless airfields of England to the scene of battle almost within eyesight of the British shore. The English ports are pouring cornucopias of the long garnered riches of men and war machines that have been assembled through these many, many months for this long-awaited hour. I return you now to New York. And we are now back in Columbia's news headquarters, the studio adjoining our newsroom in New York City. Bob Trout speaking once again. We've just heard John W. Vandercook speaking from Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Forces somewhere in Great Britain. Mr. Vandercook was representing the combined Allied networks. We were very sorry to have to interrupt Mr. Reynolds before uh, switching very rapidly to get the broadcast from London. But as you can tell, if you're staying with us, on this invasion broadcast, things happen very rapidly. We get about 30 seconds notice, sometimes less than that, that someone in London is ready with another report, and we have to switch very rapidly. And now, if uh, Mr. Reynolds doesn't mind taking up again at the point at which he was, I'd like to turn the microphone back to Quentin Reynolds. As I said, the details so far have been rather scanty, but there are a few things we do know. We do know that the weather was perfect for the attempt. The tides were right, and the moon rode high above the channel. It was a full moon in a cloudless sky, but it was the kind of moon that kept its light for the grandeur of its own height, so that the invasion fleet merged with the dark blue of the channel waters, safe from the prying eyes of the German night fighters, who for weeks have maintained a vigil over the channel and over the North Sea. But RAF bowfighters and American Havocs, the plane we used to call the DB-7, have been out too, chasing these reconnaissance planes to such heights that their value as observers was almost nullified. Even on the clearest night, you can't see much from 20,000 feet, and blacked-out ships with flame dampness hiding the red glow of their smokestacks are very difficult to spot. The brief communiques we've received so far do not tell of the prayers that went up from thousands and thousands of our men as they slid through the dangerous, uncharted minefields of the Channel and approached enemy territory. The communiques do not tell us of the feeling of tension that gripped the entire invasion fleet 
a feeling that grew and grew, that caught in your throat and that threatened to choke you. The communiques do not tell of how men clutched their tommy guns and fingered their carbines with hands that were cold, though the weather was warm. The communiques don't tell us of stomachs that tighten with the fear that always comes before the hour of action. It is always like that. The communique only tells us that the waiting is over, that the real showdown has come. We here at home during these lonely early morning hours can do nothing. Nothing but hope and pray and have faith in these fighting men of ours. Now I return you to Bob Trout. That was Columbia's war correspondent, Quentin Reynolds, who, among the uh, many military operations he has covered, was at Dieppe, which uh, was a landing, a one-day landing, as you remember, uh, somewhere in the vicinity of the fighting that's going on at present, as far as we can tell. Now, the papers are piling up here in our uh, studio adjoining the newsroom, separated from it by a glass wall here at Columbia's news headquarters in New York. It's a little difficult to tell where to begin to bring you up to date uh, most rapidly. Perhaps you heard a few moments ago, I've lost track of how long ago it was, perhaps you heard uh, the uh, INS uh, report uh, that uh, came from London and which said that the INS agency had heard the German broadcast uh, reporting, a German broadcast reporting fighting between German and Allied troops 10 miles inland from the coast of Normandy. That was a German report from the German agency DNB reported by INS from London. And I would like to point out at this time, in case you heard it, that uh, even if by some chance the German broadcast should be true, it does not necessarily mean a penetration. It could mean uh, fighting uh, with uh, between Germans and some of these airborne troops and parachutists whom we have been hearing about. Here is a one-line dispatch just been handed me. It's from the British news agency Reuters from London, and it says, the German news agency DNB says today that Allied airborne landings have been made in Normandy in great depth. And that's just what we were talking about uh, at the, just at the time that the brief Reuters dispatch was handed to me. I'd like to repeat it again because it may be very important as this fighting goes on. The German news agency DNB as reported by Reuters, says that Allied airborne landings have been made in Normandy in great depth. We don't know whether it's true or not. It's a German report, but it may help us uh, to follow the fighting a little bit uh, more intelligently and more carefully uh, as it goes along if we remember that all reports about fighting inland is not, do not necessarily mean penetration. Now, uh, it's a little bit difficult to, tell, to decide what to start into because... Once again, we've just got the signal that we are about to uh, switch the air across the ocean once again and to bring you a broadcast from the British Isles, once again, a broadcast from Shafe. You might as well remember that word. You'll be hearing a great deal of it. And so now to Jim Willard in London. This is James Willard speaking from Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Forces. I have just seen the first American troops preparing to storm ashore under the continent of Europe. They were about to land on the north coast of France at 6.30 British summer time this morning. At 6.23, the Marauder bomber in which I was riding dropped the last load of bombs to be launched onto the coastal targets before H-hour a few minutes later, when our landing barges would strike the shore. All night and from dawn onwards, thousands of Allied planes have been softening up a strip of coast. Already, several thousand paratroopers are waiting further inland to join forces with the landing parties. These airborne troops were flown in last night. I could see evidence of the landings in a number of parachutes lying in the little fields. But I must say at once, the amazing feature of my flight this morning was the almost unbelievable quietness of the scene below, where in the next few days, maybe in the next few hours, Decisive battles for the reconquest of Europe will be fought. For, with the exception of German tanks, which are moving up the roads towards the, the beachhead, or hiding in hedges, we saw no signs of enemy resistance. As our flight of 54 marauders made their bomb run along the enemy coast, we were met by only a few puffs of inaccurate flak, and by machine gun fire, machine guns firing from 40 to 50 German tanks. I'd like to record here that Sergeant Paul Scott of Cedartown, Georgia, the waste gunner beside whom I was riding, promptly turned his machine guns onto one German tank by a crossroads and claims to have set it on fire. I saw the tank burning. Apart from those tanks, a few bursts of flak and one report of a coastal battery 
I saw no signs of the enemy. Everything that flew in the air or sailed on the sea was definitely and overwhelmingly ours. You'll have to forgive the superlatives, but they're an accurate description of the facts in this case. The air and sea armadas I saw this morning were the biggest nations at war have ever launched at one time. At briefing, before we took off at dawn, the pilots were told to stay below 6,000 feet over England because that was the level assigned them. Higher up and lower down, the air was full of other planes, fortresses, liberators, lightnings, thunderbolts, spitfires, all forming up before flying south to the same target we were headed for.